What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. content it's the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the coliseum of contentious opinion so we can all decide what wins each week your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic set the specific rules and rumble until a consensus is reached then with input from you the listener base we'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four nominee poll that will enter trial by content and decide the winner for all time hello i'm dave gonzalez Oh, hello. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm the ghost of Neil Miller. It's our pre-Halloween episode, and last year we steered clear of spooky season entirely, so this year we decided to go big and broad. Did we make a mistake? Are we looking for scary, funny, spooky, fuckable, or haunting? Some Gordian knot of a Venn diagram that includes them all? We'll spend this week finding out as we debate best Movie Ghost, something I absolutely believe is real because I believe movies are real. But first, let's see how we did two weeks ago with the results from our worst superhero in the MCU live show. Joanna, I've got good news for you. You're not going to hear until the very end of this four-person list. But here are some heroes that we make pretty good cases uh, are not good heroes in the MCU. Coming in fourth place with 5% of the vote is Ryan Aries' pick of Tony Stark. It was a tough lift. He included the Twain essay. Uh, it had all the all the the hallmarks of uh, being a contender. I admired the swing. It was a good swing, you know. And and the Knights of Neil, even though he didn't get to ten percent, are very proud of Ryan's performance. <laughs> <laughs> In third place is the audience pick of Star Lord. They've got twenty four percent of the vote. Big in the room. Not big uh, on the internet. Pretty uh, like, big. Like so pretty big. big. So yeah, pretty big. Uh, only uh, eking it out by a couple of percentages points with 31% was my pick of Vision, which is uh, probably higher than I thought. But that's a that's a good that's a the, the result of a good argument, I'm thinking. And then at the tippity top, the worst superhero in the MCU, according to Trial by Content, is Joanna Robinson's pick of Hawkeye, which got 40% of the vote. Hawkeye, womp womp. 
in the SNL sketch where Jeremy Renner plays the aforementioned Hawkeye, a.k.a. Clint Barton, at the Battle of New York, and he goes, I'm out of arrows, I'll meet you in the car. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he's just going back to the car because he's out of arrows. Also, the implication that they drove to the Battle of New York. Anyway, it's great. It's great stuff. Love it. Uh, boo, Hawkeye. Boo, Hawkeye. <laughs> Uh, before we get started this week's episode, just a reminder, you go to letterbox.com slash trial by content to see our fantastically curated list by Carlos, our editor of movies we mentioned on the podcast, even if they don't make the poll. So if this is your first trial by content or one of your early trial by contents and you've previously gotten mad at us for just not nominating something you think is the obvious answer, chances are we talked about it. Check it out at letterbox.com slash trial by content. And next week, we need you to write in to trial by content at gmail.com with your thoughts on this topic to be included in the debate. We are looking for the best animated TV series for adults. We're pivoting from movies to TV. We're looking for TV shows that can be enjoyed by adults. Are they targeted directly at adults? Uh, probably not, but I don't think you're going to have a great you know, chance with like Adventure Time. And God help you if you pick The Simpsons. Someone's going to try, and I don't know how that's going to work out for you. Uh, but I certainly watched more Simpsons as not an adult than I have as an adult. But you do you. Send us your choice and uh, make your case in an email to trialbycontent at gmail.com. This is where I turn it over to Joanna Robinson. Oh, hi, I'm Joanna Robinson. And as you heard, we did a live show in New York um, for as part of our book tour for MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, the book that Dave and I wrote together. Neil was very much there with us in spirit, as was our producer, Carlos, who did a brilliant job making the audio from a very echoey Grand Central Station live show uh, work. I already told him this, but I'm just like in awe. And then also Carly showed up to our Virginia event, which was very, very cool. Came a, came a long way. Delightful. Um, our tour is mostly done, but I just want to plug a couple upcoming things. On October 30th, it's a few days from now, The Ringerverse, another podcast that I do, is doing a live show at the Terragram Ballroom in LA. We're not selling books there, but I if you bring a copy of the book, I will sign it there. So, uh, you know, they're going to give me a little table and I'll have some pens and I will sign a book. So if you care about that sort of thing, you may not. But if you do, if you're going to that live show and you bring a book, I will sign it for you. Thank you so much. Uh, that show is sold out. But if you already have tickets, uh, the Texas Book Festival, which is happening in early November, second week of November, Dave and I will be there for that. We have an event on the Sunday. That that event, the Texas Book Festival, takes place in beautiful Austin. Um, is free to the public. You don't have to buy tickets or anything like that. You just show up. So if you just show up to our event on Sunday, you can walk in. Uh, that's on the website in terms of like the where and when and how and of all of that. Uh, Texas Book Festival. Also, Austin, hometown to our beloved Neil Miller. So we'll huh. be, so the three of us will be together in Austin. And I'm thrilled about that. It's going to be a delight. Last but not least, Dave and I are going to Dutch Comic Con in Utrecht <laughs> in the Netherlands. And Boy, I howdy. Am, I'm really excited about that. There's some like really cool people are coming. Kelly Sue DeConnick is going to be there. Elijah Wood's going to be there. Famke Johnson's going to be there, blah, blah, blah. So if you're listening to this and you can like get to Utrecht easily or difficultly, you should come say hi to us. Um, that's currently on the schedule. I'm not missing anything, right, Dave? That's... That's what we got going on. Those, those are the, the things the two of us are doing in uh, in November. Yeah. All right. Today, we are here not to talk about MCU or a book we wrote, 
But uh, we're here to determine the best ghost room movie. And as Dave said in his beautiful, brilliant preamble, your definition of best will vary. Scary, funny, spooky, fuckable, or haunting uh, is sort of the taxonomy that Dave laid out. But you might have other qualifications. But best is in the eye of the beholder. The reason Ruby picked this was just generally spooky season. But what happened that we didn't necessarily have exactly planned out is that the great Mike Flanagan, who's a writer-director extraordinaire, uh, dropped another one of his like spooky season Netflix sort of anthology-ish shows, The Fall of the House of Usher, which I did an episode of Prestige Television about. I don't know why I pronounce it that way, Prestige TV about um, that podcast. You can listen to it. And then Dave and Neil have have their own podcast and they have been covering Mike Flanagan all month. But we like to talk to each other about these things. <laughs> I mean, okay, Dave and Neil have already talked to each other. I like to inject myself into their conversation <laughs> and also talk about Mike Flanagan. So we just thought we would talk about Mike Flanagan as like a creator a bit and then maybe a bit specifically about Fall of the House of Usher because Mike Flanagan is not just like a fond of a horror genre or a literary horror adaptation he quite specifically loves ghosts and ghosts is like manifestation manifestation of trauma and all this various stuff he uses ghosts i think better than any current creator uh so i just wanted to start by asking you both what was your first exposure to mike flanagan and how would you describe that project dave how did you first encounter mike flanagan Oh, my first was Ouija Origin of Evil, which I see here doesn't have a bracketed parathetical what type of ghost. This is a possession movie. Uh, but specifically, I was assigned to do a, I believe, Thrillist article on the real origins of the Ouija board and uh, in with this movie coming out. So I went and saw the movie. And the reason I liked it so much more than the first one uh, is because it does sort of the history of spiritualism, which I've gotten in some light uh, controversy talking about this podcast before, I want to talk about it slightly more narrowed down, is just like uh, like two little girls who were able to snap their toes and convince like a whole town that they were hearing rapping from a, a ghost. Uh, that was like where American spiritualism sort of uh, became its own thing outside of uh, uh, English spiritualism. So I was very happy to see uh, Mike Flanagan do a uh, little girl possession story uh, in Origin of Evil and not necessarily do uh, what we considered the Ouija board to be uh, post-exorcist, which is like a uh, a gateway directly to hell. So uh, that was where I first saw him. I caught up with his uh, movies like Oculus that have uh, came out before that, but uh, Ouija was my natural introduction to Mike Flanagan. Neil! Miller. Well, I, uh, Dave, Dave is a much more of an early Mike Flanagan adopter than I probably both of you much earlier adopters because I did not really get into the Flaniverse until I saw Midnight Mass, which was a 2021 um, show, limited series that he did for Netflix that is all about spirituality again coming up uh, against forces that are unexplainable i also think it's just a really interesting meditation on the nature of death like what death is and what death means and how we interpret uh human expiration yeah <laughs> uh that i find <laughs> extremely fascinating <laughs> and you know i mean we've been podcasting together for a long time so this is not a surprise to you guys or any of my listeners but i've always been 
uh, easily scared. Uh, like like Luke in the house uh, haunting of Hill House, um, I was a scared Aww. kid, uh, so I was never a big horror person. But one of the things I've enjoyed about Mike Flanagan's work, uh, discovering it over the last couple of years, is the amount of trust I feel in him as a filmmaker. That nothing is ever going to be sort of cheap or you know a, like he doesn't go for cheap jump scares. He goes for thoughtful explorations of where these terrifying ideas come from and how our minds, you know, whether it is uh, supernatural elements or our minds just making it up, uh, makes a very compelling case for, I guess, plausibility of some of these things that he explores in his shows. So, uh, yeah, I've become a big fan over the last couple of years. I, the first Mike Flanagan project I ever saw was Oculus, but I didn't see it like in 2013 when it came out. Um, I probably saw it in like uh, 2015, 2016, maybe something like that. Um, maybe even later. No, probably around that. Um, my friends and I were doing like a horror movie club where we would just like meet once a week and watch a horror movie and stuff like that. And someone picked Oculus and it had Karen Gillan in it and Katie Sackoff, like two genre actresses that I really liked. This is a sort of family, a possessed mirror in a house family kind of uh you know uh, that genre the possessed mirror genre like a haunted house but it's like a haunted object it has a lot in common with hill house i would say i think you can see the connective tissue between oculus and hill house where you have like kids and a traumatic thing happens with their parents in this house when they're kids and then they come back as as adults and are in this house and are trying to figure out like if they can understand what happened to their parents. And then like this idea of like marital infidelity and like all this other stuff like that is wrapped. Like what Flanagan really likes to explore with his ghosts uh, usually has to do with like, uh, you know, an actual adult problem, but how, you know, it's similar to like uh, how Buffy the vampire slayer is like, what if, you know, the actual shit you went through in high school were literal monsters? He's like, what if it's literal ghosts? You know, um, what if the trauma you feel, the grief you feel, the guilt you feel is like actual literal ghosts? Uh, so Oculus is the first one, but the first one where I was like aware, because I would say if you asked me about Oculus when I saw it, I'd be like, oh, that Karen Gillan film or, or that Katie Sackhoff film. I didn't know who Mike Flanagan was. Uh, but Gerald's Game, which is the 2017 adaptation he does, Stephen King's story with Bruce Greenwood and Carlo Gugino. Um, that's where I was like, who's this guy? And, oh, what has he done? And then Hill House happened. And then, uh, you know, I, I've seen everything he's done except for Ouija, <laughs> Origin of Evil. Um, and I think there's, like, one other I haven't seen. But, um, yeah, I watched Hush, which is this little movie he made with his uh, wonderful, very talented wife, Kate Siegel, who he puts in everything. Um, I, I've watched every single Netflix joint he's done. Doctor Sleep, Director's Cut. Just, you know... I think what's really cool about Gerald's game is that Stephen King, who like notoriously has hated so many adaptations of his books, was like, finally, somebody gets me. And it's Mike Flanagan. He sort of like anointed Mike Flanagan as this guy who like gets Stephen King. And so then Dr. Sleep, which is the, you know, shining sequel that King wrote, he made with Ewan McGregor. And then, yeah, I've just, I will just rewatch a Flanagan Netflix show. Like Hill House, I think I've seen three times through. Midnight Mass, I'm currently on my fourth time through watching it. I just find there's an odd amount of comfort 
in these weird little ghosty horror films. And they're not sweet. They're very sad and terrible things happen to good people. Uh, or in Usher, terrible things happen to terrible people. Um, Dave, do you find comfort in horror at all? Do you find comfort in a, in a ghost story? Yeah, actually, um, the ones that sort of interest me the most and the things I found myself rewatching for this week was uh, like, I think ghost stories are an excellent way into a mystery. So it adds a little bit more on top of like your traditional uh, mystery films of which we've done several podcasts about. Uh, But if it's a haunting mystery, I think it really uh, ups the ante in terms of the capability of a mystery to be thriller, uh, but also a way to do backstory where, you know, we're, we're intrigued to find out why this haunting is occurring or why this haunting is occurring to whoever our protagonist is. And uh, instead of just being a, you know, like a slasher movie is a rising series of set pieces, uh, a a haunting mystery uh, gets to follow the mystery line all the way through and I think is allowed to pace itself a little bit better. So that's probably the the flavor of Ghost uh, that I like the most. And I think it is because... I don't find it absolutely threatening. If there's a mystery about it, usually there's a very specific why this ghost is doing it and what we need to do in order to stop this haunting, even if it's just get out of the house. Uh, But it gives me a certain degree of uh, power where it's like, uh, it's never going to happen to me. Uh, I Slasher movies, a little bit more horrifying because we are all just a wrong turn down the street to a very real slasher uh, capable uh, person. So uh, ghosts, much more fun. Neil, do you get any comfort out of a ghost story? How do you feel um, I, I think I am. I, I get more comfort out of ghost stories as I get older and I move more on the Dave Gonzalez side of like, I'm pretty sure ghosts are not real. Um, but what I do think is really fascinating about ghosts as a general matter is that it's, to me, it's all about the capacity of the human mind to uh, not only try to explain what is ultimately something very unexplainable about human life, which is what happens after the lights go off, um, but also the ways, and I, I think I've appreciated this about Mike Flanagan's stuff as I've been, I've been watching Hill House for the first time this past week, yeah. is that he seems to be very fascinated in not just the potential that ghosts might be real, but the mind, the human mind's capacity to make those things real for us. And I think that makes, you know, a lot of these ghost stories are really good mysteries, but they're also confrontations with our own fractured psyches and uh, humans trying to explain sometimes some of the most terrifying things you can imagine right, that happened to these ghosts that caused them to continue to exist on our plane of existence. So, um, yeah, I don't know if it's if it's necessarily comfort, but I do find it to be a, a really fascinating exploration of the human condition and our, our desire to understand what happens after we die and try to explain why it is anyone would want to stick around after they die. I think Flanagan also just, like, really hits me uh, in the my like the in the sweet spot of things that I like because, you know, Hill House, Bly Manor, and House of Usher, are all, you know, a- and the King properties are all literary adaptations of like, Haunting of Hill House is an is a pretty close-ish, no, not that close, uh, roundabout adaptation of the Shirley Jackson story, um, but 
Bly Manor and House of Usher are uh, like, let's grab all these little short stories. And in the in the case of House of Usher, uh, poems from Henry James and Edgar Allan Poe. And so then it becomes this just like literary reference smorgasbord where like character names and different stories are being referenced left and right, little, little snippets of poetry, et cetera. And it's just sort of like, sometimes it sticks out a bit like, Naming characters Annabelle Lee and Lenore, like when you are, if you are quite familiar with those Edgar Allan Poe uh, poems, but then other things are just like really clever. Are you like, well, I I was talking to Van about this on the Prestige episode we did, but I wasn't paying close attention to the episode titles, but I am pretty familiar with Poe stories, so I was just like had a really fun time in the middle of a story trying to figure out like what story am I in? And I'm like, oh, we're doing the Red Mask of Death. Or like, oh, it's the Telltale Heart. Or, oh, it's this. And that was just like uh, really exciting and fun for like, you know, an English major nerd. Um, Dave, is there any like, did you want to talk about some of the actual lore that he's worked into some of his stuff? The actual lore? Sorry. Well, uh, me... I, I, please elaborate. And I'm sure I have something to say about it. Isn't there like a true story around Hill House or something like that that he incorporated or did I make that up? Uh, I'm unaware of that. Uh, I am aware of the many adaptations of Hill House, though, because I did rewatch some of those uh, for uh, this this podcast. And I I don't think they're going to end up making it in the debate. We might talk about some of them from like a pre-trial. But uh, the thing that I love about his Hill House is it is uh, Shirley Jackson's book is uh, so inside the head of its characters and the actual hauntings are uh, so specific uh, to like noises and footsteps and like doors looking like they're being uh, attempted to be open. All things that we don't actually see a ghost. It's all about uh, the border between what happens in like creepy houses and then the mind. And what I love about Hill House, I don't want to spoil it for Neil because he's still watching it or anybody really, even though we might light spoiler warning for ghost movies going forward yeah. <laughs> as we're, as we're <laughs> not making our actual nominations. Uh, but he's able to, again, split that difference to what you guys were talking about, where it's uh, what the human mind does to make the ghost seem real is very much from Shirley Jackson's book and being able to pull that up and through uh, his work, I think has been uh, uh, an amazing adaptation. Were you, were you looking for like a real haunted house that uh, Shirley Jackson heard about? That No, don't worry about it. I I, I, I think I made something up in my head. Um, Anyway, um, much like ghosts. Um, Something that I'm excited <laughs> for you to discover more, Neil, as you as you finish up Hill House, uh, and you might have already like noticed some of them, but I guarantee you haven't seen all of them. Is that in Hill House, and in, it's so scary. He just puts ghosts randomly in the background and draws no attention to them, and they're just standing there. And like, if you then go online and like look up like breakdowns, I think our pal Lindsay Romain did one for Nerdist. Like that, like here are all the background ghosts that you miss in Hill House. It they're everywhere and they're so scary because you're like oh sure i've seen them and i'm like no you haven't seen all of them they're just hanging out all the time and it's like oh it's it's upsetting oh yeah i mean hill house it's it's one of those shows that the way it's filmed this sort of methodical way that he he moves the camera around rooms that it has you watching every inch of every frame which is a really good way to get your audience like super locked in. Um, I feel like they do a lot of that in sort of early episodes of House of Usher, but they call attention to it a couple of times and it's still very terrifying. 
the ghost was already there before, you know, the soundtrack uh, you exactly. know, told you to pay attention Just, to it. You got to be on your toes when you're watching a Mike Flanagan joint. Uh, so true. Um, before we roll on to this other aspect of Mike Flanagan, then we're going to move on entirely, which is the like uh, recurring cast of characters that he uses, um, which is a really fun part about a Flanagan joint. You're like, ooh, what's what's Raul Coley up to this week? Um, is uh, do you guys have a favorite like of what you've seen so far? Do you have a standout favorite, Neil? Just favorite Mike Flanagan performer? No, no, sorry, just a project, oh. TV or film. It's it's still Midnight Mass. I still think Midnight Mass is incredible, just top to bottom. David, David, Doctor Sleep director's cut all the way, just inching out Midnight Mass. Uh, because you know what, Doctor Sleep does need like uh two more eight minute monologues before it can really compete. Uh, <laughs> but I do love the director's cut version of it uh, because it does have enough of those monologues for me to uh, enjoy it. If you watch Dr. Sleep and you're not watching the director's cut, you are doing yourself a disservice. I really recommend you watch the director's cut. Uh, it's Midnight Mass for me, but a close number two, uh, it's either Dr. Sleep or Hill House. But they're all like really tightly clustered at the top. I think they're all masterpieces, honestly. Um, yeah, and then in terms of like the Flanniverse actors, I just thought it'd be fun to name a, Flan- a Mike Flanniverse prom king and queen uh, Carrie style here in spooky season. So, uh, uh, Dave Gonzalez. Oh, if I get to go first, I'll take Raul Cooley for my mail. Uh, and then, oh man, uh, who do I really want to do for a female? I feel like uh, that would be a pretty easy to uh, swap at his wife. So I, I don't think we're allowed to do that, right? She's the only, his wife, Kay Siegel, who's in almost every single thing that he's done, uh, is the only one off the table. She is Mike's queen. We don't get to take her. Uh, I'm going to uh, take uh, someone from Hill House then. I will take uh, Nell from Hill House, a, uh, who was uh, Victoria Pedretti, I believe is, was her name. Uh, but if, uh, those two want to get together in some sort, I don't know, I don't even know what literary ghostly trouble they could get up to next. Uh, but I would, uh, love to see them, uh, both again. Yeah. She's, she's great in, uh, Bly Manor too. Um, and also in you, a very creepy in the TV series, you, uh, Neil Miller, who are you picking? Well, I am taking the kid from E.T. himself, uh, Henry Thomas. It. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who is, uh, you know, as far as Mike Flanagan is concerned, Henry Thomas is the perfect uh, flashback dad, like for every show. And there's just like a really unnerving presence that Henry Thomas is able to have with a lot of these characters that I did not expect. Um, and so he he would definitely be my prom king. And then, that, listen, it's her time. She She is the great crossroads demon of my heart and she has been for a long time carla gagino so um definitely you know between her performance that uh that i'm experiencing in real time in hill house which is great and then she's just so good in house of usher and and gerald's game carla gagino has done so many intense things for mike flanagan on screen she's been handcuffed to things she's been evil she's been terrified um Give her a horror Oscar. We need to create horror Oscars for Carla Gugino. <laughs> I love it. Okay, since you took some heavy hitters, I will say, I'm going to say Zach Guilford, good old Matt Saracen himself in front of the lights, because 
not because he's like the best or most versatile that we've seen, because like Henry Thomas is just incredible and all this stuff. But I had written Zach Guilford off after he anything he did after Friday Night Lights, I thought was uh, not good. And so I was like, oh, turns out Zach Guilford's sort of like good old Tim Riggins himself is not a great actor. He was just good at being Matt Saracen. But then he shows up in Midnight Mass and I think he is so good in Midnight Mass. And then fun in Midnight Club, great in Follow the House of Usher, even though he's grappling with a really unfortunate wig. Like it's, I just, the the uh, Zach Guilford re- resurgent is a, a great thing. And then again, this is a very like Midnight Mass heavy <laughs> choice, but uh, Samantha Sloyan, who has been in a number of things, but is just like, peak incredible as Bev in Midnight Mass, um, but also good in um, Haunting of Hill House, in Fall of the House of Usher, in Hush. She's just been in a number of them. Uh, she's going to be my queen. So there you go. Uh, last but not least, and then we're done with Flanagan City. Uh, we just want to say that there's a new Flanagan joint coming called Life of Chuck, starring uh, Tom Hiddleston and the aforementioned queen of Mike Flanagan's heart, um, Kate Siegel. But um, I just want to read out some other folks who are uh, in this cast. Tom Hiddleston, you've heard of him. Mark Hamill, you've heard of him. Also Grace, Follow the House of Usher. Um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Karen Gillan, Jacob Tremblay, uh, Matthew Lillard, Harvey Guillen, who I love from What We Do in the Shadows, uh, Kate Siegel, Carl Lumley, Samantha Sloyan, Raul Coley, uh, Heather Langenkamp, who he used in Heather Langenkamp! But horror queen Heather Langenkamp. Um, Mia Sarah, who I haven't heard from since oh, wow. the fucking 80s. So, yeah, I'm really excited uh, for this. Uh, Dave, you said you recently read the Stephen King story this is based on. What can you tell us about, you know, giving the whole game away? Uh, so it is a three-part short story or novella, probably, uh, that takes place in his book, If It Bleeds. Uh, and it is told in reverse chronological order. Uh, the first segment actually doesn't involve uh, Chuck at all, uh, but is involving apparently the end of the world. Uh, things are going downhill for uh, the entire Earth. Uh, stars are starting to wink out like it is pretty terrifying. Uh, but uh, around uh, the towns uh, and various places, they're just like billboards up. They're like, congratulations on 38 great years, Chuck. Like, happy retirement. And everyone's like, WTF. And then we progress backwards uh, to finally meet Chuck as a businessman and then later as a child uh, that gives uh, context to what's happening. It will not be ghostless. I can promise you that. Uh, Mike Flanagan bringing back the Stephen King uh, ghosts. Uh, As to how he's going to turn that into a full narrative with this murderer's row of uh, cast i'm looking forward to because i definitely thought it was a weird stephen king short story to pick to make a film adaptation of but if we want to have tom hiddleston doing it like why not i'm so excited i'm thrilled yeah My, mike flanagan really loves a challenge right he, he does Didn't give me the most unadaptable thing stephen king has ever written gerald's and i game. will make gerald's game out of it yeah. <laughs> incredible <laughs> so good um all right that is uh flanagan city done and dusted i'm handing the the keys to this haunted house over to neil miller excellent well i am charging into the door 
<laughs> of this haunted house uh, because we got some awards to give out. Uh, first up, of course, as we do every week, is our nice try awards. We have folks really shooting for it this week, which I always appreciate. I love it when the nice try awards call themselves out. Um, but what surprised me, and this I think led to the potentially more Flanagan heavy opening of this podcast, is that we got multiple emails, three separate nice try nominations for the bent neck lady in the haunting of Hill House, which is, as one of the uh, emailers called it, peak ghosting. And I definitely <laughs> agree, even though I have not fully finished Haunting of Hill House, but like even like six episodes in, I'm like, yeah, Ben Neck Lady is is pretty top notch uh, ghost. And uh, but, you know, it's a television show, so it does not count for our best movie ghost debate. Uh, similarly, someone wrote in to nominate BBC's Ghosts which also a television show, but one that I think I remember fondly. I watched a little bit of Ghosts. I like those, uh, you know, British dramas about ghosts. <laughs> this is a comedy. This is a comedy. Yeah, it's pretty dramedy. recent. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a CBS uh, adaptation, an American version that is actually doing quite well. Uh, I was surprised. Oh, yeah, because uh, uh, our household uh, has a VPN probably for this purpose. Java loves BBC's ghosts will not touch, will not touch American ghosts. I don't, I'm not interested in American ghosts, but I was just surprised that it like, cause oftentimes when American, you know, like when they tried to make the American coupling and you're like, it just doesn't translate or like, you know, the first season of the American office was like, didn't quite get it or whatever, but right out the gate, American ghosts was, is quite popular with the American audience, but I agree. BBC version's better. Well, you know, people love ghosts. That's going to be a recurring theme on this particular <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Um, and our final nice try award this week is uh, someone nominated Cooper from the Christopher Nolan movie Interstellar, which uh, I do see the argument. He, he does become a, a quote unquote ghost inside of a bookcase at one point, <laughs> which is all I'm going to say about Interstellar's plot. If you've not seen the movie that it couldn't even remotely be a spoiler because it's very confusing how they get there. Um, the reason why I disqualified this, even though you could work your way to seeing how this uh, could be a ghost story is that this isn't even the most Christopher Nolan-y ghost story that exists. I would take the dead wife from Inception, who exists only in Leonardo DiCaprio's head, um, as more of a straightforward ghost story than what happens in Interstellar. Yeah, if, you, if you're going to pick a Nolan ghost, it might as well be one of his many, many dead wives, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so those are our nice tries of the week. Really entertaining stuff. Thank you to everyone who wrote in for those. We also have our collective shame corner this week, which is uh, highlighting some of the things that no one, uh, including your three faithful hosts, wrote in about or picked. And that includes an entire section of Japanese horror ghosts because there are so many of them and they have... You know, there's many of them are involved in rings. Some of them have grudges. Uh, quite a few of them occupy weird houses with animated cat faces. And there's plenty of vengefulness. But uh, it, it seems like we just didn't didn't have enough time to consume the totality of Japanese horror ghosts because there are so many of them. Uh, so, you know, sadly, they are not going to get nominated. Similarly, uh, Spirited Away. Did not get a nomination this week. Dave was particularly un, uh, unhappy about this. Oh, it's just we every once in a while we get a Miyazaki film that gets thrown into nominations, and we kind of we traditionally not picked it. 
sort of in the back of my mind that's almost like a different genre than most of the things we're talking about. But I did want to point out that uh, uh, lots of spirits, which could technically be ghosts, uh, but no spirits nominations. Are ghosts. Yeah. Spirits, though, Dave, also not real? Uh, uh, listen, I don't want to argue uh, on whether or not the soul exists or whether or not there's <laughs> life after death. I just want to say there aren't any ghosts as we think about them as ghosts. I didn't want to take a shit on all spiritualism. or I'm oh, sorry, all spirituality. I did kind of want to take a shit on all spiritualism, but all spirituality <laughs> and like knowing the, you know, souls of your ancestors or bonding with the land, that all... Uh, that that's fine with me as long as they're not like knocking over glasses of water in your bathroom when you're trying to sleep that sure. that doesn't happen <laughs> not corporeal as it exactly. turns out uh, all right well that brings us to our list of pre-trial dismissals i'm extremely happy to report that we got so many wonderful emails that uh, just did are not going to make it into the debate and that includes multiple emails uh for different members of and some emails about the entire cast of the film the others which, uh, if you have not seen the others, I'm sorry to tell you that there's a lot of ghosts in that movie. A lot of people are ghosts in the others. Uh, we also had got some love for the King of the Dead from Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, a heroic ghost story. Um, a, that's always nice to see. Uh, someone, not even remotely joking, sent in an email supportive of Henry Golding's character in Last Christmas, which you don't even need to have seen the movie, Last, the Amelia Clark star vehicle, Last Christmas, uh, to know, because as we discussed in our prep, it was basically clear from the trailer that that dude was a that, that character was a ghost. So, uh, but, you know, shout out to the folks who are keeping uh, that particular movie alive in our hearts. Let it, uh, let it go. Just, let it die. It's okay to let that one go. <laughs> Uh, and then we move on to one that I will personally never let go of because he's an all-time icon of the screen. That is Slimer from Ghostbusters. I would also smuggle Vigo the Carpathian. Oh, yeah. In, or Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Stay Puft, also really good. It's just really any of the ghosts from Ghostbusters uh, could be could be in this debate. Um, although overshadowed by the men who are busting them. I guess in those movies. <laughs> Once again, overshadowed Typical by the patri- men. Patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Typical. Um, and then we also have we got a really inspired email about the a character from Beetlejuice that is not Beetlejuice, but specifically the Miss Argentina character <laughs> in Beetlejuice. Um, I love that. I I I celebrate a lot of the ghosts. Like the football player ghosts are really great in Beetlejuice. Basically, the entire waiting room in Beetlejuice could be in this poll. But uh, I don't. I don't think this will be the last time we talk about Beetlejuice before this podcast is over. Uh, we also have a little Hitchcock in the mix. We have Rebecca from Rebecca, or I guess the multiple adaptations of Rebecca that now exist. But I believe specifically the Hitchcock version. Don't worry about the <laughs> Army don't, Hammer don't one. Don't worry about Just the Army worry. Hammer. Just don't <laughs> worry about it. <laughs> Um, and we get, there's just so many fun ones on this list. We got the Poltergeist from Poltergeist. We have the uh, the murdered, shipwrecked lepers from John Carpenter's The Fog. Uh, we have the bathtub woman, Ms. Massey, from The Shining. The Shining, not to be left out of this discussion. Never uh, leave out The Shining. Well, it, and also from Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep, the director's cut, the bathtub lady comes back uh, several times in that scared one. Scared me so much. Uh, 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 uh. Um, 
We also throw it back to 1963's The Haunting, which, uh, as I, this is one I've never seen, but Dave added this to the list. There may not even be a ghost in this one. Is yeah, that, this is one of those. Correctly? This is one of those Hill House adaptations where uh, stuff happens, but the question is: Is it a ghost or is a uh, psychokinetic woman haunting everybody because she's uh, very depressed? Is that the Vincent Price one? Uh, it is not. That is a different. Yeah, yeah, that is a different uh, story. The reason they might be linked is they were both remade in the late 90s, the Vincent Price uh, uh, House on Haunted Hill and this one, The Haunting. Uh, the Haunting, uh, the 90s uh, version was... Captain uh, Zeta-Jones. Liam Neeson, Captain Zeta-Jones, and Owen Wilson. Lily uh, Taylor. It is, it is, Fun performances for most people, not good. Uh, not no. a good movie. My friends uh, and I saw that in the theater, and like, would because Lily Taylor has a whole like monologue uh, late in that movie that we would just like imitate for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Lily Taylor becomes ascendant uh, through James Wan later on, but uh, in late nineties, not great. And then the remake of uh, Haunt, uh, the, the 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 Vincent Price one. Uh, was uh, I, I believe that also has like Femke Jansen in it, but that one was like slightly scarier, even though it was not uh, fully as crazy as the Vincent Price one, which is basically like it comes get ten thousand dollars for spending a night in a haunted house, and nobody fucking questions that and wonders if maybe their host is going to use that as an excuse to murder them. Uh, that's why we uh, don't accept a ten thousand dollar overnight in uh, ha- haunted house invitations. Certainly not uh, when Vincent Price is involved. <laughs> I might do it. If it's involved, I'm out. I'm out. Ten thousand dollars is a lot of money. Come see my house of wax. No, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Have you heard about my experimentation with flies? No, thank you. (laughs) Oh, he has. He's in the. He's also in that. uh, The Corman adaptation of the Mask of the Red Death, which I recently saw, like a the restored version, which is restored by Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation a few years ago, I think. Uh, And that one's insane because. Vincent Price's like contribution or that version's contribution to the adaptation of Poe is uh, he's just like straight up like, I'm a Satanist. I worship Satan. You're all here together. We will worship Satan. And I'm like, that's not you didn't, the point. You didn't need to go that far, but Vincent Price can sort of pull it off. Uh, anyway, what what great ghost movies these all are. <laughs> nice. Um Next up in our dismissals, we have what I call the Guillermo del Toro division, which is the ghost child from The Devil's Backbone and the red ghost from Crimson Peaks. Guillermo del Toro, uh, unfortunately, not does not have a movie that's going to make the debate, but is a filmmaker very much interest in, interested in ghosts and their gothic settings most often. So uh, shout out to Guillermo. Uh, incredible. Uh, and then, of course, this here's another one I haven't seen, but Joanna's going to tell us, uh, going to do a fun accent corner about this one, because uh, apparently in 1988's High Spirits, Liam Neeson is doing some things, and someone else is doing some things. <laughs> High Spirits is a movie I've seen so many times, and I showed it to someone kind of recently, and they still liked it, so like this is a late 80s comedy that maybe holds up. But it's Steve Gutenberg, it's Peter O'Toole, and you were like, those two ever made a movie together? They sure did. Peter O'Toole... <laughs> plays the last scion of this like old Irish family and they live in this castle and they try to save the castle, which is like a tourist attraction that is like crumbling and no one is coming to by claiming that it's haunted and it's 
not haunted as far as they know. And so all these Americans show up, like Steve Gutenberg, Jennifer Tilly, original hot priest himself, Peter Gallagher, uh, plays someone named Bro- Brother Tony, uh, and Beverly D'Angelo. And they show up for their ghost experience. And it's like shitty, ramshackle, people with bed sheets over them, essentially ghosts. And then the real ghosts of the castle wake up. And among them are Liam Neeson as a very Irish uh, murderer named Martin Brody Brogan and Daryl Hannah as a quote unquote Irish uh, <laughs> yeah. woman named Mary Brogan who he murdered and um, they just show up and hide high the highest of jinx ensue <laughs> and nice. I love this movie I think it's great I do like ghost hijinks right when a ghost is doing fun stuff instead of being extremely scary. Which brings me to our next uh, dismissal, which is the digital ghosts in the 2001, uh, and I'm specifically talking about the 2001 Kyoshi Kurosawa film, not the 2006 remake of Pulse, which continues to be a movie to this day, Dave, that I have had people who know me well and my horror uh, limits well tell me that I should absolutely never see this movie because it is really, really, really terrifying. It is incredibly terrifying. Uh, Probably the best use, and again, 2001, so we weren't that far into it, but the best use of uh, digital distortion as a film effect to pull off some scares, because it, it it doesn't feel as much like a jump scare if it's authentically tied into, like, the entire theme of the, uh, uh, the movie. But yeah, Pulse... Pretty terrifying. Uh, American remake, not so bad, but not not nearly as terrifying. So there you have that. A uh, couple more before we move on to our toughest cut. We've got Jody the Pig Demon in most of the Amityville horror films. Um, listen, pig demons on their own, very terrifying. <laughs> just as a concept. I've just never heard the phrase Jody the Pig Demon uh, <laughs> before in my life. Excited <laughs> to be introduced to it. There's a character I'd never want to meet. Uh, and then, of course, from the Conjuring films, uh, Bathsheba. Uh, the Conjuring, Bathsheba, sorry. It's okay. How then, dare you? How dare <laughs> I? Blaspheme Bathsheba. The, the James Wan acolytes are going to come but for this me. Is, this is the, the, the Lily renaissance. She comes back. She's a fine horror, horrorist after the haunting. Nice. Uh, and then we have quote unquote Walter from The Changeling. The Changeling is another one that I have, have not seen, Dave. Um, Ooh, I would, don't worry about why those quotes are there then. Just uh, go watch The Changeling. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so those that is our long list of pretrial dismissals. Once again, thank you to everyone who wrote in and made their case to trialbycontent at gmail.com. It is time for our toughest cut, which is the choice that we would have chosen if we did not make our ultimate picks. And uh, let's start with Joanna this week. Joanna, who's your toughest cut? Oh, movie ghost? it's someone from The Sixth Sense, but not who you think. <laughs> uh, one could easily pick Bruce Willis from The Sixth Sense if one wanted to. Um, but the one that scared the absolute stuffing out of me and does every time she shows up is little puking Misha Barton in The Sixth Sense. She is so scary. The sound cue that happens when she first shows up in his little, like, tent that he has created is just, like... And it's my favorite ghost trope, which is, I know who murdered me. Let me... Let's let's all together figure out who murdered me so that they can be brought to justice. So 
pu- little puke in Misha Barton. Love that. That's my pick. Shout out to the Sixth Sense. Uh, Bruce, also a candidate, but, uh, you know, m- maybe not the best one. We'll see. Uh, Dave, who is your... Ah, uh, yes. Uh, another hobby horse I get to ride in this episode about ghosts. In the year 2012, the best animated feature Oscar went to a movie called Brave, which I very much dislike for a couple of different reasons. But primarily, it's because it overshadowed what I thought was the best animated movie of the year, the stop motion Paranorman. It is about a little boy who can talk to ghosts, and you would think that would be enough for its own plot. But no, there is another ghost that has cursed the townspeople who uh, put her to death for being a witch into being zombies. So once these zombies rise up, everybody in the town's like, oh no, zombies, and tries to punish them. But Norman... He could actually talk to them thanks to his power to talking to the dead. So he is able to realize the zombies regret and follow the mystery back to Aggie Pendergast, which would be my nomination. Uh, Aggie Pendergast from Paranorman. Uh, she's at the center uh, of uh, the plot uh, and, and a pretty visually stunning uh, finale sequence. Uh, once Norman uh, uses his power of communication uh, to bring down the big bad. Uh, I love that movie. I love Aggie as a character. And uh, if you haven't seen it, seen it. One of my favorite animated movies of all time. Nice. What, one of the more reliable and consistent ghost movie tropes, which is there is one person that can communicate with the spirits and it's a child. I thought you were going to say one of the most one of the most reliable and consistent Dave Gonzalez choices. <laughs> <laughs> that too, for sure. Also fair. Uh, all right, that brings it to my choice, which is uh, probably not a real ghost. Depends on if you think real ghosts ghosts are real. But we did, uh, this is inspired by one of our listener emails that we got suggesting the ghost boy on the set of the movie Three Men and a Baby, something that folks for a time were confused about uh, whether or not it was real. If, if if you don't know the story, there's a shot. This is, of course, Three Men and a Baby is the, what is it, 1987 film starring uh, Another Ted Danson. Steve Gutenberg classic. Steve Gutenberg. About, uh, and uh, Tom Selleck is also in this. And it's all about them trying to raise a baby to hilarious degrees And there really isn't supposed to be a ghost in it, but at one point there is a scene where behind Ted Danson and the baby, they pan across a window and it looks like there is a a maybe, I don't know, four and a half foot tall uh, ghost in the window. I think ultimately it it was said that it was probably just like a little standee, you know, like one of those theater standees of Ted Danson. But... Uh, audiences in 1987 were were not entirely convinced that it wasn't a ghost on the set. So I found this to be an extremely inspired choice for movie ghost because it is technically something people thought was a ghost in a movie, but I believe it's it's since been debunked uh, to the extent that I think that the stars of the movie, Tom Selleck in particular, was like, yeah, Disney they really let people just sort of believe that for a little while, that there was a real <laughs> ghost in the background of our movie. Because you, the, you will make buy a VHS. Yeah, you will buy yeah. a VHS of three men and a baby to maybe see a ghost. Yeah. So there you have it. A wild story of a not real ghost. 
on the set of the movie Three Men and a Baby. Uh, but that's my toughest cut. I picked an actual movie ghost for my pick, I promise. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Neil picked a not real ghost, uh, it, which is perfect. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. That brings us to our debate. And after uh, two previous weeks of coming in dead last, so much that I tried to say it was the Joanna Robinson spot, she rode Hawkeye to the top this week. So, Joanna, you get to kick us off. I just do want to say that, like, I often don't care about whether or not I win. But when you tried to claim that my my I belong to the bottom of the list, like <laughs> generally, right before we started our live show, Grand Central Station, I was like, well, now I got to win, motherfuckers. So, <laughs> uh, I feel less bullish this week. I feel like I can just sort of coast on that uh, sweet, swift justice that, ex- that happened in New York City. But I was bullish on picking this uh, candidate. I picked him as soon as we picked the topic and y'all let me have him and I really appreciate it. His film is literally called Ghost. It is one Mr. Patrick Swayze, baby. And if you are looking for most fuckable ghosts, I don't know how you could not pick Patrick Swayze. He of the sexy ceramics, though he's not a ghost at that point in the story. Um, I love this like the thing about Swayze at the height of his powers, uh, he plays a guy named Sam who dies. He's in love with a woman named Molly, uh, played by Demi Moore. Sam dies quite early on. That's not a spoiler. Um, and he needs to figure out how to communicate with uh, his uh, beloved. And uh, that is where Whoopi Goldberg's Oda Mae Brown, who is a spiritual, uh, a huckster, but actually winds up being able to communicate with Patrick Stacey. There's only one person who communicate with ghosts. It's not a child. It's Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so she, she, he can communicate through her, but he's also kind of doing that like fun, like taking ghost lessons things. So learning how to move things and become like slightly corporeal and all that sort of stuff like that. Um, and Tony Goldwyn is also here uh, as his friend. And uh, I just, 
Swayze, the like growing up with Swayze as a leading man in a lot of our films, I don't think we fully appreciated it. But the more we rewatch these Swayze movies, like Be It Roadhouse or Point Break or Dirty Dancing or whatever, there was just something extremely powerful about what Swayze was doing, like above and beyond the fuckability factor. But there's just something he's such like a physically powerful presence with this like softness to him um, that you can see in Tu Wong Fu if you prefer. But this is like a beautifully romantic film, a very sad film, a sometimes really funny film. And he's just like, you know, the consummate, uh, I know who killed me or let's find out who killed me, uh, ghost and, uh, and then set me free. And I just love this film and I love him in it. So Swayze for me. Patrick Swayze in Ghost. Do we have to say Sam from Ghost? Or are you trying to get some actual real world ghost points by no, saying God. Swayze in Ghost? No, Sam. Sam from oh, no. Ghost. You just, you just talked up how much sometimes you really want to win. Uh, I would not. You could, you I could would pick what you want. I would not utilize the tragic death of Patrick Swayze <laughs> in order to win the ghost bracket. Honestly, how dare you? <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, I think I come in uh, next, which is uh, fun because my movie, it turns out, has a sequel coming out next year, which I forgot about until I was uh, thinking about it uh, this year. Um, and it is a name that you have to say three times in order to properly summer him. Uh, I'm going with Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Uh, I think that Michael Keaton's performance here is amazing in the sense that uh, Beetlejuice doesn't have as much screen time, screen time as some other ghosts in the movie that has his name as a title. Uh, but he doesn't waste any of his screen time either. It is uh, like packed with uh, small side jokes like a Warner Brothers cartoon most of the time that Beetlejuice is on screen. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, it uh, is about a couple who are living in Connecticut, played by Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. Uh, they die in a car accident, but come back to their house and discover that they are dead and the rules of the afterlife. They cannot leave their house. If they do, they are transported to a uh, dune-like desert planet with sandworms. Um, and then eventually, once they uh, realize that they're dead, they get uh, you know a guide to being dead. They get to go to the waiting room that Neil was describing with a bunch of lots of other fun ghosts. But then uh, a family uh, from New York City, uh, played by Jeffrey Jones, Catherine O'Hara, and Winona Ryder, move in to the house and make it super New York-y. And uh, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin can't stand it. They need a bio-exorcist to scare these people out of their haunted house because as new ghosts, uh, they aren't that good at actually uh, being scary yet. This also has some like ghost elements of learning to be a ghost in it. Uh, but Beetlejuice is a professional creep. And he is here to uh, haunt out the Dietz family uh, and maybe get married to Winona Ryder while he's on the physical plane. Because who wouldn't, if especially Winona Ryder in the late 80s, but also because uh, he is otherwise trapped where you can summon him or banish him by saying his name three times. And the only way to break that curse is to be taken 
uh, as a husband. And uh, that's the plot of Beetlejuice. But this haunting isn't just scary. He proves he can be scary in a pretty fun shot where they, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis ask him, can he be scary? And from behind, we see his face blow open into like tentacles and uh, different bugs. And they scream. So we know it's possible for him to be scary, but mostly he is scarily fun making people, uh, you know, uh, sort of carnival game themselves into uh, horrible positions, turning into a snake version of himself. And uh, this movie also has some fantastic dancing as haunting and singing as haunting uh, as we get some uh, Belafonte bangers in this movie. Not just one but multiple. And so I present to you the ghost with the most as he describes himself, Beetlejuice. And this is the only time as a person who lives in Colorado that I'll bring up Lauren Boebert, but pretty sexy musical I hear. Oh God. Come on now. Okay. That's how bad Dave wants to win. He's like, um, let me use Boebert as like a positive. <laughs> we, we've said her name twice. Don't go too far. But yes, I invoke the literal Colorado devil to help my, uh, my, my campaign. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Beetlejuice. Uh, which brings us to Mr. Neil Miller. All right. Well, you know, listen, Dave, that's a good choice. Beetlejuice uh, is a good ghost. And, you know, saying his name three times will summon him. But in order to meet my choice, you're going to need to find the nearest mirror. And you're going to need to say his name five times. And I'm only going to say it four because I'm not testing fate today. I am, of course, referring to Candyman, 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 Candyman. And that's it. Uh, Because I do not want uh, Tony Todd, the hulking villain of the 1992 Bernard Rose film, to show up right behind me and uh, make me extremely famous. Because, listen, friends, what this debate needs is an extremely vengeful ghost. And that is the role Candyman is here to play. He is here not only to take vengeance upon just about everyone in sight, but also um, he will, if, if you summon him, he will make a murderer out of you. He will frame you for murder and then do all the murders himself. That's Candyman's game. Um, And of course, this is a film, uh, like I mentioned from 1992, that stars uh, Virginia Madsen and uh, legendary director Casey Lemons as two academics who are investigating the urban legend of Candyman. This is all based on a Clive Barker story. And what I love about it is there's a couple of really great adaptation choices here, right? The choice to take Barker's novel, which is set in Liverpool, and move it to Chicago and make it this very American story about a ghost that's haunting the Cabrini-Green housing projects in Chicago. And another thing I love is that Tony Todd himself is the one who fleshed out a lot of the the backstory. The ultimate backstory of Candyman is that he was this African-American man, free African-American man who lived in the late 1800s, and he was the son of a slave. And he grew up to become this well-known painter, and he fell in love with a white lady. And for that crime, he was uh, murdered in pretty horrific manner that involved both the removal of his right arm uh, that was later replaced with a hook, and uh, being stung to death by bees, all both of which come back into play as Candyman, uh, ways in which Candyman will get you. Um, 
The other thing I love is that the saying his name five times in the mirror thing was something they invented totally for the movie. Um, so it's this really wonderful, like different elements of horror adaptation that took this character who in the book was just sort of this, uh, psychotic killing uh, machine ghost enigma and grounded it in this really intense story about America's history of, of racism. And eventually like when you get to the sequels of Candyman, they actually start to like empathize with him. This movie, not so much. He does a lot of terrible things to humans and pets and potentially small children uh, and definitely Virginia Madsen. And it's got this, uh, this towering and elegant, like Candyman is the kind of ghost that shows up and as he's doing all these terrible things in, um, you know, really, really extremely dirty bath, public bathrooms for some reason, uh, he's also like delivering Shakespearean dialogue because he's, he's a very fancy lad from the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, a terrifying ghost that uh, when I was young, honestly, was very afraid that I would summon him in, in real oh, life. Really? This Candyman definitely is like right up there. It's based on sort of the Bloody Mary myth. You guys have heard about yeah. Bloody Mary. Oh, right? yeah. We used to do Bloody Mary in the bath- bathroom. So we it's like that's feels a little too too real for me, like that, that Candyman is so easy to summon. Um, and then finally, my final point on this is that I love a, a great ghost movie that comes with a a wonderful behind the scenes anecdote, uh, which is, you know, they use real bees. There's a sequence uh, toward the end of this movie where uh, Candyman actually has bees coming out of his mouth and going all over Virginia Madsen's character. Um, And Tony Todd, in order to pull this off, Tony Todd actually wore a dental dam. And then somebody, the, 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 the beekeeper that they hired, uh, put about 500 bees into his mouth so that they could slowly leak out of his mouth. <laughs> that's 500. That's 500 too many bees to put. It's 500 too many bees. <laughs> you need you need exactly zero bees ever in your mouth. <laughs> oh my god! I didn't know. I've never seen Candyman. This is so. Oh my god! Horrifying. Oh, it's, you've never it's seen deeply distressing. But here's the fun thing about Tony Todd, legend, uh, who not only fleshed out this character's backstory and created the icon that we uh, know of today, but he also had this to say later. He said, I negotiated a bonus of $1,000 for every sting during the bee scene, and I got stung 23 times. Everything that's worth making has to involve some sort of pain. Once I realized it was an important part of who Candyman was, I embraced it. It was like putting on a beautiful coat. A beautiful coat of bees, live, actual, real bees. Uh, it's it's one of those scenes where you, you watch it now and you're like, CG, I could never do something this crazy. Also, what a great contract. That's a whole appearance fee just in bee stings. 23 grand just for a couple minutes of getting stung by bees. Oh on, the face. <laughs> but, on the face. On the face. But yeah, so it's it, one of my all-time favorite horror movies. One of the scariest ghosts you can possibly imagine. And uh, again, it's it's about America's history of extreme racism. So there, you know, it's, it's all like the things. It's, it's all my I interests. Like that, I like I like that it's five <laughs> times because I always feel like like with Beetlejuice or with Bloody Mary, like three times. It's just like three times could be an accident. Like it's such an accident. Like you could yeah. so easily accidentally <laughs> call that person, but five times you like have to really mean it. You know. Yeah. So. Well, and in the movie Candyman, they make a real meal out of anytime somebody 
has to say his name in the mirror when they get to the fourth one. Like they say it four times and then there's always this really intense dramatic pause. Like, am I really about to do this? (laughs) It's like, I'm feeling really brave with the fourth one. But uh, yeah. And then the other thing I will say for Candyman is if you have, if you are um, someone who has a weak stomach for horror gore, this movie definitely goes off to a place where there are rooms covered with blood. This man does a lot of stuff with his hook, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Just never see a Clive Barker adaptation if you don't sure. like bloody horror. Yeah. I think it's it's really bloody. A, yeah, it's pretty fair. I was of the age that Candyman was first told to me by a child who I used to name him and say I disliked him. But now that I realize sort of the memory that he gave me, I'm okay with this was told to me as something that happened. He somehow saw the movie in like 1992. I'm eight, so I did not see the movie, but uh, because of irresponsible parenting. So he came back and he's like, you think Bloody Mary's scary? Listen to fucking this. And I'm like, that's terrifying. Bees and a hook? What the shit? And then it was just like, vomit bees onto you? I was not aware this was a movie for several years. I thought, and then when like the movie came out, I'm like, oh, cool. They made a movie about that urban legend. And then I watched it and I'm like, I, now I'm very confused. But if I go back and I, um, you know, do some forensic memory, uh, it was definitely told to me as something that actually happened to like his cousin. I could see it because Candyman the movie makes a very strong case for if people believe Candyman's point is like if people continue to believe in me, I will continue to exist. So, you know, if you're at an impressionable age, you walk out of that being like, well, if I believe Candyman's real, then he's real. And that's all that all that I need to know. And uh, that is extremely terrifying. The bees, I like this benefit of the doubt you're uh, giving this kid who absolutely was like a little piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> was traumatized poor young Dave. He was also the guy that was like, you know, in Street Fighter 2, if you pull off the right combo, like Chun-Li's pants come off. And we were all like, oh my God, what's the combo? And like, it made he made that fucking up. Uh, oh, man. Um, Good everybody knows Dave. one of those kids. <laughs> made, that, made an appearance. <laughs> who knew? I, it's harder these days because we have the internet. But back in my day, there was just one kid who'd make shit up and you're like, why would he make that up? That's uh, surely it's true. Innocence. I understand that Tony Todd is an extremely large man. He's like six foot five. I have actually been in this. So like I've stood near to, I never talked to him. I don't know him, but like I've stood near him. He's a huge individual. I still cannot understand physically fitting 500 bees in even that large man's mouth. That's so <laughs> many Well, and that's only a fraction of what they use. They use 200,000 live bees on this movie in general. Because there's like multiple bee scenes. There's like one where there's like a toilet full of bees. And then uh, there's a scene where Virginia Madsen's like fully covered in bees. Uh, All real bees. So it's worth watching it just for that. To be like, man, they used to, we used to be a real country. We used to have real movies. (laughs) We used to live in a society. (laughs) We used to live in a society. So we got pure horror or urban legend. We got sexy Patrick Swayze. We got a joking ghost that uh, probably isn't that scary. Uh, So we need to find our fourth flavor to put into this poll. We have each picked one of your emails uh, to contribute. And uh, Joanna, why don't you kick it off? Um, 
you've seen sexy, you've seen scary, but have you seen friendly? Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pick a listener, Lauren, not uh, the aforementioned Lauren from Colorado, who says, maybe this will only win because of elder millennials, but by God, Casper is the best. Facts. Colon. Number one, he is friendly. Number two, he always smiles. Number three, he was never threatening. Number four, he sat with you in high places. Yes, after dragging you out of a window and holding you by your foot to fly you there, but that's irrelevant because he shows you he will always save you. Five, he serves you breakfast. Six, he became a ghost to keep his father from being lonely. Seven, he (laughs) sacrificed his one chance of becoming human again in order to save Kat's dad's life, played by none other than Bill Pullman. He knows the love she has from his. He felt the love for his own dad. Uh, please remember this nomination season, Casper, your favorite, not alive, but also your first crush ghost. And the reason that Lauren mentions first crush is because here's the wild thing about Casper. If you've never seen Casper the Friendly Ghost, this movie from, I believe it's 1995. Um, Casper is just this like cherubic, sweet, cute little cartoon voiced by someone else entirely, except for like a three minute sequence where he rolls up to the school to the dance in corporeal human form as Devin Sawa heartthrob young heartthrob middle school heartthrob extraordinaire from the 90s like it was like Jonathan it was like JTT and Devin Sawa like rocking the curtain hair shows up gives Christina Ricci the slow dance of a lifetime and a smooch and then is right back in after this move right back into cherubic adorable cartoon ghost this is like the reverse of that moment at the end of beauty and the beast when the beast turns into the prince and bell's like i don't know about this i kind of prefer <laughs> the beastie version christina Ricci's like oh my my nice little cute little adorable ghost friend is actually this extremely hot middle schooler what's happening and i just need to point out a couple other things 1995 was quite the year for Devin Sawa because he and Christine, Christina Ricci kissed in both this movie and Now and Then. It was like, a t- they were like king and queen of 1995. Um, also, Ka- Devin Sawa as Casper says this thing that feels illegal for an alleged 12-year-old to have said, which he says, can I keep you to Christina Ricci? And this imprinted itself on a generation of girls who grew up watching Casper. So let me just say, I never saw this movie at the right age. I don't have these feelings about Devin Sawa and Casper, but I know that there's a whole generation of women who feel some kind of way about two to three minutes of this film in which Devin Sawa says to Christina Ricci, can I keep you? And by dint of that alone, Casper is here. The good old friendly ghost. So there you go. Friendliest. Quite friendly, (laughs) as it turns out. Not just a dead Richie Rich like we always suspected, but actually Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa himself. Uh, I love that. Uh, I knew it was coming, but I still love it being here for the full uh, context. Uh, Neil, who have you picked? Well, I've got a great one. This honestly was very much in the sphere of things I was going to pick for myself, but I'm so glad that we got this email because it was great. Uh, this comes from our listener, Charlotte, who sent this in in honor of her husband, which will be explained shortly, and their ninth wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, guys. Uh, Charlotte goes on to say, in honor of my husband, Brad, I would like to submit to you our shared beloved childhood Christmas classic that my husband and children quote incessantly from Thanksgiving to New Year's, Jacob and Robert Marley from the Muppets Christmas Carol. (laughs) 
First, as all ghosts should, their entrance in the movie scared the living shit out of me as a child. Although, to be fair, I was commonly considered rather cowardly. You and me both, Charlotte. Uh, Second, as characters and actors, they go toe-to-toe with the legendary Sir Michael Caine, who is playing (laughs) one of the most famous stories of redemption surrounded by puppets, as straight as if you were playing Casey Affleck's character from Manchester by Sea. Too many Casey Affleck references this week. Uh, Third, they deliver one of the best lines in the movie, more gravy than of grave. What a terrible pun. Leave the comedy to the bears, Ebenezer. Fourth, and probably the most convincing point of my argument, they very honestly represent two people whose souls are still deeply mutilated and tortured by their actions in life, as evidenced by their sadistic laughter as they recount evicting an entire orphanage in the middle of winter. They then shudder as they recall that it is what brought them to where they are. Soon after the chains begin pulling them back into the depths to be punished for their crimes that they clearly still have much to learn from. Fifth and finally, I remember quite clearly this is one of the first examples of literary devices being employed in film that I actually understood. Many of the other versions of A Christmas uh, Christmas Carol make the Marleys far too ghoulish and scary. This one uses a catchy song to help kids and general audiences understand the lessons of the Marleys. Don't be such a dick or you will suffer the consequences. Um, A Muppet Christmas Carol, several great ghosts in this movie, but by far... Sattler and Waldorf as the Marley brothers is just, it comes with a banger of a song. It teaches us, taught me as a child, everything I needed to know about the kind of people who become landlords. Uh, it's just a very important <laughs> moment for me cinematically. And uh, it goes with the theme of like, sometimes ghosts are fun, even though they have, you know, dark stories. It's, uh, it's an extremely fun and entertaining, um, wonderful song. You're doom, doom, Scrooge. Doom, doom for all time. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I have two notes and they're mostly for Charlotte. Uh, one, it's uh, it, the version of uh, this that appears in the Muppets is great. This is, they make them dual Marleys. Otherwise, it is a Marley. Uh, so if you're seeing other adaptations with two Marleys, uh, I think you might be thinking of another movie. And the other one is more, of, there's more of gravy than of grave is to you is kick-ass Dickens line <laughs> that uh, <laughs> is like from the book, love everything about it. I understand uh, it might be a terrible pun, but why not keep the original one in a, such a punny movie as, as The Muppets? Sure. Uh, but, and leave uh, comedy to the bears, Ebenezer, is a, is a good <laughs> good stinger. That's, yeah, yes. No, she, uh, Charlotte, great writer, just wanted to do some minor oh, factual well actually. They just need to well actually, <laughs> our listener. It's the first time I've ever heard somebody, well, actually, a Muppet's Christmas Carol. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm full of so much more than that. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I Are you love... full of bees? 500 yeah, bees uh, in your mouth? Full of, full of 2,500 bees. <laughs> uh, yeah, I lo- love that movie. Love that pick. Uh, and did, I, I was very happy when for a couple of days, Neil's like, I'm thinking about the Marleys. And I'm like, fuck yes, more Muppets. <laughs> um, uh, so I'd be very happy if it gets in the poll. But I have picked somebody else that you get to. I think Jordan was trying for a nice try award because I think that's how our email ends. But guess what? You're going to make the listener debate. Here we go. Today, I offer a submission for best movie ghost that fits the literal definition. If not the spirit huh, of the prompt, force ghost <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
It's right there in the name. He is a ghost. He counts. All the other movies in this debate will most likely have one thing in common. Being a ghost sucks. Well, except maybe Casper, but he's a child and that shit is still depressing. Most media depicts ghosts as sad, vengeful, angry, or all of the above. They're tethered to the earth by their inability to let go of the mortal plane and are cursed to wander it being spooky until they resolve their issues. Meanwhile, George Lucas was like, in my universe, jazz is called jizz and being a ghost is awesome. (laughs) Not only is it awesome, it's literally a thing you strive for. It takes actual effort on your part to become a force ghost. Why? What are the benefits? Unclear. You get to continue to teach your Padawan. No retirement for you, buddy. Someone should really call the teachers union on this one. So Jordan says, Horse Ghost, Obi-Wan Kenobi from Empire Strikes Back and Onwards. Uh, you got you, Well, I guess if you count his voice in all three of the original trilogy movies. Yeah. Oh, and Force Awakens. Uh, but it's a, well, that one is the Ewan McGregor voice. Uh, I guess it... If it's just the Force character, then you get uh, uh, both both versions. Uh, but yeah, uh, do we want to allow Force Ghost Obi Wan in this uh, debate at all? I think would be the primary question before we narrow down. I don't see how he's not a ghost. Yeah, great. Like, yeah, I mean it's a it's, Force Ghost. Like he's, he's a ghost. He's a ghost in the movie. He's dead. He's a ghost. I don't want to go. Out, I don't want to compete with him in a poll. But like, <laughs> he's not not a ghost. It's true. And, and I'm, I'm receptive to this idea that being a ghost is a sort of aspirational thing in Star Wars. And that makes it a little bit unique. The more I learn about force ghosting and whatever that plane of existence they go to. Uh, I've been learning more about it from world. Ahsoka. Um, <laughs> being a ghost seems to be almost better than being an alive Jedi, especially in the time that uh, Obi-Wan lived. Right. He, he's seen some rough stuff. So. Uh, yeah, I think this totally counts. This is this is actually genuinely a tough one to beat um, if we allow it into the poll. I think instead of putting this in the poll, we should do what we originally agreed upon, and I don't know if you remember this several weeks ago, <laughs> was that we should put Casper in the poll and tag extremely active Twitter user Devin Sala <laughs> to see if he will engage with the tweet. Well, and then it can be extremely active Twitter user Devin Sawa versus extremely active Twitter user Tony Todd <laughs> versus uh, the Burton Hive and the Swayze Hive. Yeah, ah. versus versus definitely not Patrick Swayze. Tony Todd will take a week off of promoting himself as Venom in Spider-Man 2 and maybe help out uh, <laughs> Candyman uh, sequel director Nia DaCosta with the Marvels and tweet our poll is what we're saying. And and, and in that world where we usually make things compete, we're trying to actually get real life people, Devin Sawa, Tony Todd, to <laughs> e- interact with. The we're podcast. doing some influencer marketing with our podcast. I mean, we never do this. This is this is this is dirty <laughs> and cheap. We never do this, but I think it would be funny, and it sort of feels like a seance. Like, can we rouse the ghosts? Can, can we? <laughs> Devin Sawa. Can we get Devin Sawa to retweet this poll with "Can I keep you?" Yeah, that's the that's yes, the goal. That's the goal. How many times do I need to tweet Devin Sawa's name into a mirror in order to get him <laughs> here for this? Uh, I am up for this. I could discount for a ghost Obi Wan Kenobi because although he's a very good on screen ghost. Uh, he is mostly there for retcon. He is the, from a certain point of view, Darth Vader did kill your father person. Uh, so great ghost, great part of mythology, 
is he the even the best ghost in Star Wars? Uh, probably not. He's the one who started the whole from a certain point of view. Uh, Who's the direction. best ghost in Star Wars? Yoda. Oh, Ghost Yoda. Yeah, I mean, Ghost yeah. Yoda is pretty good. I think Ghost Qui Gon could be great if they bring him off the bench. We just haven't got enough of Ghost Qui Gon. Ghost Hayden is pretty good in Ahsoka. Gotta say. I mean, either way, uh, they, all of them already better than Ghost Obi Wan, so uh, we can count that out. <laughs> okay. So is it Devin Sawa or is it uh, these fucking Muppets? <laughs> <laughs> I think I like the balance of the poll if it's Casper, because then it's just a really iconic movie ghosts. The you know real ones know that the Marleys are uh, the greatest cinematic ghosts. This is one of our most elder millennial polls of all time. I think the year spread is less than 10 on these uh, four <laughs> movies. I mean, we're we're trying our best to to bring people like us to the podcast, I guess, but also trying to get them interact. So, <laughs> best ghost in cinematic history. By cinematic history, we mean sometime in the eighties to sometime in the nineties. That's it. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so, our final poll is Beetlejuice in Beetlejuice, Sam Patrick Swayze in Ghost, Candyman from Candyman. And Casper from Casper. Uh, do we need to put Devin Sawa Casper from Casper? To <laughs> Please full... add Devin Sawa in the comments of this tweet. <laughs> Thank you. Depends on if he name searches. Some celebrities name search. Uh, all right. Uh, this is uh, going to be a fun one. We turn it over to you. We certainly had fun talking about some cinematic ghosts. Again, apologies to all non-American cinematic ghosts. I think we might be able to get around to you with an entirely different category. So you can find our poll for best movie ghosts on the ringer.com at ringer on Twitter. That's the name of the app, Twitter and in the Spotify app where you find trial by content. You choose the winner. We'll announce it next week. Another friendly reminder. Uh, you could vote once in all three of those places. So that's three votes for you. Uh, make sure to check out letterbox.com slash trial by content to look at the other ghost movies that we mentioned in this week's podcast. And Neil, remind them what to write in about next week. Well, next week, Dave, we're going to be talking about what is the best animated TV series for adults. And I believe a lot of this will hinge on your interpretation of the phrase for adults. Um, but either way, whatever you want to pick, make your case, of course, in an email to trialbycontent at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Carlos Chiriboga. We would love to keep him with consent. <laughs> <laughs>